Scotland, and I'm so grateful that Desmond has focused us already on that passage of our Lord Jesus coming to Jerusalem. And my dear wife Jackie is just going to read you that passage again from Matthew's Gospel. And I would ask you, as she does so, just to close your eyes and imagine the scene and ask yourselves this question. What do you think Jesus' state of mind was as these events happened? Thank you. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this man? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Think of the noise. Think of the hubbub of the crowd. Think of the dust. Think of the heat. The start of a momentous week, the most momentous in the history of mankind. What was going through the mind of our Lord Jesus? What was his state of mind? Was it elation? I mean, the crowds were loving him. They were shouting, Hosanna! Save! Save! Or was it actually deflation because if you heard the text they're saying who is he oh he's that prophet from out of town Jesus from Nazareth no real recognition there was he humble yes he was riding on a donkey the colt of a donkey was he fearful hmm don't know was he tearful yes because in Luke's account the next verse He's weeping over Jerusalem and throughout the whole week he goes through a spectrum of emotions. Next day he goes into the temple, defiant, angry, kicks out all those money-grabbing exchanges. Then he curses a fig tree. But by the evening of the Passover, he's sad and in the garden he says, I am overwhelmed by sorrow unto death. What was really in his mind? If you had to sum it up in one word, and I thought a lot about this, the one word I would sum up is unsurprised. You see, nothing catches Jesus by surprise in this week or indeed in any week. He knows every detail in advance. Why? Because it's all been written down. Do you know, even the look on his face is prophesied, even the look, his expression. Your NIV doesn't do it very well. It says, um, as the time approached, Jesus set out resolutely for Jerusalem. Bad translation. 
The better translation in the King James Version is, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's, um, that's a Hebraism, that's, that's a, a, a Hebraic um, metaphor. That's the way it was written. He set his face. And that's a direct reference to Isaiah 50, where it says, Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. I thought Desmond brought out beautifully why his face was granite-like, like one of the great tours on Dartmoor. Why was he flint-faced? Not because he was gritting his teeth, because of love. Because it was love that drove him, as it was love that held him on the cross. Love drew him like an electromagnetic force to Calvary and kept him there. That love, that passion and compassion for you and for me. Do you know it? Do you feel it? Will you experience it this week? You must do. Every time you see that cross, you can say to yourself, I did that. My sin put him there. Back to this business of knowing everything. Isn't it wonderful? God says in Isaiah 46, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I declare the beginning from the end, and from ancient times the things are not yet accomplished What I have said that I will bring about, I will do. What I have planned, I will achieve. And Jesus knew the Torah. He knew his scriptures. He knew every one of those promises. He he memorized them. He studied them. He used them to rebuke Satan himself. He taught them in parables and other ways. He said, didn't he? In Matthew, at the outset of his ministry, he said, Folks, I've not come here to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. I've come to fulfill prophecy. And his amen to that comes right at the end of the story of his life on earth at the road of Emmaus in Luke 24. He says to those poor, confused disciples, How foolish you are. How slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures about himself. I don't know if Jesus ever counted them up or bothered to, but you know there are 300 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, 300. 20 of them are fulfilled in just a space of 24 hours around his death, 20 of them. And now there's only a handful left. Any mathematicians here? The mathematics of this are fascinating. A few years ago, an American professor called Peter Stoner and his students got together and and did some calculations. And they took eight prophecies one of which actually was that he would come as a king to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He took, they took eight of them and they calculated the chances of eight prophecies about Jesus being fulfilled by chance alone. What do you think the answer was? 
One in 10,000? No. One in a million? No. One in a hundred million? No. The answer, friends, is one in ten to the power of 17. That's one zero short of a billion billion. I don't know a bookie who'd take those chances, do you? No, no, sorry, you wouldn't only bookies, neither do I either. But just get a sense of the amazing, that's eight prophecies. Then they sat down and worked out the chances of Jesus fulfilling 48 prophecies. And the answer was one in 10 to the power of 127. I mean, that's a finite number, but it's, it's infinitely unlikely what, what would it look like if we calculated the chance of Jesus fulfilling 300 prophecies? It would just be off the scale. And there's a principle here. There's a principle here. If our God is faithful to the, that degree, to that point, that we can't even calculate the odds of him letting us down, how boundless the confidence we must have in the future. There are three words that are not heard in the throne room of God. Whoops! Where did that come from? What are we going to do next? I tell you, those words have been spoken time and time again in the cabinet room at number 10. The domestic staff are probably sick and tired of hearing them. But with Jesus, with God... There's nothing more reassuring for you and for me in these times to know that our God is working to a plan. There are no coincidences, there are no accidents, there are only appointed events, appointed times, appointed people. Take this home. Every time Brexit comes up, just say to yourself, we are in God's hands and he has an answer. We don't know it, no one knows it. But he's working his timing out. Built believing on that must do something for our faith. I don't often do this, but I'm going to ask you to say something, declare something. Our faith is built on his faithfulness. Come on, let's do it. Our faith is built on his faithfulness. Isn't that wonderful? It's like we love. Why? Because he loved first. We have faith. Why? Because of his faithfulness over thousands of years. Never breaking his promise to us. And actually, I, it's a little bit usual because this is Palm Sunday. I, I actually want to look futuristically at that. It, I, I'm really excited about this. I want to look beyond Calvary because time is short, folks, and people are sleeping. And what do I refer to? I'm referring to what Titus calls the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. I'm talking about the second coming. I'm not a prophet. I'm a watchman, and so should you be. I watch on the walls. In the ancient days of Israel, watchmen were stationed like sentries on the city walls. While the city slept, while the city was awake. They looked out for messengers. They looked out for enemies. If something untoward was, was, was happening, they had a trumpet. And they would sound the trumpet and wake the people. And this wasn't just for physical safety. It was for spiritual preparedness. 
God has quite a lot to say about watchmen in Ezekiel's. And the responsibility on a watchman was huge. Listen to this. If the watchman sees the sword coming, that's an enemy approaching, and does not sound the trumpet to warn the people and one of them dies, I will hold the watchman accountable for his blood. I don't want somebody else's blood on my conscience. And so I have no, I have no hesitation in preaching this this morning. The Lord is coming and the day is close. And the church is deaf and ignorant and not listening. I'm not talking about you folks specifically. How dare I? I wouldn't say that. I'm saying collectively. You see that the younger generation, they're not actually interested in the second coming. Not most of them. They really aren't. I've talked to them. Even within my own family, they say, oh, Grandpa, they call me Bumper. Bumper. Stop bumping. You know, we're too busy. Life, we don't disbelieve you, but life is too full. It's so depressing to think. It isn't depressing. They just, they don't understand. They're too busy enjoying life. Church leaders are distracted. Within my own family, we've got a daughter and a son-in-law pastoring a great big church, actually, in Holland. They're lovely, doing brilliant work, but they say to me, Daddy, they say, oh, Dad... They said, we don't disagree with the word you're saying. We are too busy getting people saved. We're too busy sorting out lives, restoring relationships. We don't disagree with you. It's just, it can't be our priority. (laughs) Don't know what that was. And so many church leaders will say, do you know, a lot of them are not actually, actually telling you the truth. What they are actually saying is, If I get into eschatology, I've got to make my mind up about Israel because Israel is so central and the people of Israel are so central to what happens in the end times that I cannot hold to my present position, which is one of replacement theology. You know what I'm talking about? I see heads nodding. And then, I mean, most people just won't get into it because it's too complex Revelation. Oh, what a terrible book. It's a beautiful book. It's too complex. The truth is not that clear and it's too divisive. End times, like Israel, can divide a church. And so they stick away from it. And then, of course, there are what Peter calls the scoffers. And he wasn't talking to people who liked second helpings at lunch like me. Above all, you must understand... That in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has been since the beginning of time. And you know they're actually true. For 2,000 years, every generation has preached Jesus is coming in our generation, in our time. And with that, there's been a lot of fake news. I've counted more than 50 false prophecies, big ones, in history with a terrific letdown. Fake news. Sometimes the prophets who profit have the nerve to say, oops, small mistake there, I'll go back again and I'll I'll pray again. They come back with another date and another book and another time to send around the collection. There are seven prophetic dates for the end of the world or the, the second coming 
currently now that you can find on Wikipedia, and uh, the next one is next year, but it's entirely in the Lord's hands. But the fact that he hasn't come yet doesn't for a moment mean he isn't going to come. And I love the way that Peter goes on in 2 Peter to say, don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, have you ever thought about this, dear folks? I know many of you have been on the road. You've been Christians for a long time. But if Jesus had come back 10 years ago, would you have been ready? How about 20 years? In Desmond's case, if Jesus had come back 65 plus years, Desmond, you were only a little chap, but you wouldn't have been ready. In my case, 1985. I didn't come to faith till I was 40. 44. If Jesus had come back in 1984, I'd have been for the flames, folks. I'm so grateful that he delayed. Think of that every time you read this verse. He doesn't want any to perish. And therefore he's delaying till exactly the right time. Hallelujah. Now, The second coming of our Lord Jesus is a huge subject. But as far as his personal appearance, his parousia, to use the Greek word, it comes in two parts. And the word parousia is used of both parts. And I'm going to speak about them. I'm going to read you the famous um, uh, passage from Paul in 1 Thessalonians about what we call the rapture. We believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Listen to this. According to the Lord's own word we tell you that we who are still alive who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not go before those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with those words. You know... The rapture would be a preposterous idea if it weren't Jesus' own teaching. Uh, My reaction the first time I came across the rapture was to think this is nuts. You know, I'm going to go in the clouds with a load of dead people. And Desmond might have told you, but he didn't know. Actually, professionally, I was a pathologist. I I knew a lot about dead people. I'm going to go up in the clouds, up in the sky, with a lot of dead guys for a reunion up there. That, that's nuts. I'm more likely to have a rupture than a rapture. I, 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 but then, you see, God spoke to me. And did I not say, Paul prefaces it by saying, according to the Lord's word, according to Jesus' own logos, Jesus taught this to us. I thought, 
Where? When? Well, you know the passage. You know it so well. It may not have ever struck you this way. But in that beautiful passage in John 14, when Jesus is addressing the disciples, who are already beginning to get very upset and disturbed at the thought of losing him, he says, in my father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And when I have prepared a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that also you may be where I am. And a few verses later on, in verse 28, verse 18, he repeats it. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And yet again in the same chapter, in verse 28, he says, You heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. I've told you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will know. And people deny the rapture. How can you? It's preposterous. They say the rapture's not in the Old Testament. It's not prophesied. No! But it's prophesied by our Lord Jesus Christ and by all the apostles. What more testimony do you want? It's part of what theologians call progressive revelation. It's absolutely kosher. You can believe it. Now, friends, I'm not come in this brief time to stir dissension about the times or the details. If you want to believe in a, in a rapture that happens at some time during the tribulation or then... That's up to you. There are, there are arguments and there are cases for pre-, mid-, and post-tribulation. And I'm not going to get into that. There are also blessings from those positions. So let, let, let's, let's agree to disagree. Let's be Tiny Tim. What did Tiny Tim say? God bless us all, everyone. And God will do. Let's not fall out. But I just want to talk about the first and the second coming, very briefly. The first and the second coming. You see, the way I see it, the, the first part is a very private, it's a family affair. Jesus is coming for his own, his saints, the true church, past and present generations. He's coming, Paul tells us repeatedly, and Jesus himself uses the same metaphor, like a bridegroom to Claim his bride. Isn't that beautiful? No signs or warnings. This isn't for the world. There's going to be a rendezvous somewhere twixt earth and heaven in the skies. And it's going to be so joyous. And then he takes us for a brief time back to heaven. The world's not involved. It won't understand what's happening. It will be unaware at the time. And then very soon it will be terribly aware. And I don't know how governments are going to explain it to their folks. I think it's, it's going to be a lot about conspiracy theories and UFOs. There's going to be a lot of mental exercise to explain the disappearance of the saints. And you contrast that with the second, the second coming. After all the confusion and the pain and the destruction of the tribulation, it, it, that's going to be one. It's going to be very public. It's going to be very noisy. It, 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 it's going to be very, very visual. Look, says Revelation. 
He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. How will every eye see him? Because it will be on every television screen in every house in the land. And he's coming, not in secret, he's coming as a king, a judge in power and glory. He returns as he left, as the angel said. He will come back as he left. His feet will make a firm landing on the Mount of Olives. Not up in the sky and out of sight. Uh, I, I was looking for an analogy, and I found quite a good one actually, by a 19th century theologian who compared the first and the second coming with the restoration of the English monarchy in 1660. Don't know how good your history is, but after years of Puritanism and republics, a republic, King Charles II came back. And what happened was that a number of his most devoted, loyal subjects left the country secretly and went over to France, where he'd been in exile ever since boyhood, and met him there. And there was a joyous reunion. And there was a time of planning and, and looking forward. There was a time of giving rewards. This is all, you know, very much like scripture. And then they all came back. They came back. He came back with his own. And the country received him. It had to. But he comes back as now as a king, not as a refugee, a judge, to rule the nations with a rod of iron. It's not a bad picture. And there will be many signs we know of that event. They're spoken of in Matthew 24 and Luke 16 and chapter 21. And when these things happen, lift up your heads, says Luke, for your redemption is close. I want to try just something on you because I think this is quite important. We do know that Jesus' rapture, our rapture, has no harbinger. It has no warning signs. That's very clear. And I hardly need to tell a group like this. We are not even entitled to ask about timing. But if the rapture is very close to the tribulation, what about that? Because the tribulation has lots of warning signs. I was, I was trying to think about this and I, I thought, if I invited you to my house and you didn't know where to go, and my house was right out in the sticks, it isn't quite, um, but there were no road signs. And I would have to say, will you take this direction and that direction? You're heading there, and you won't see my house until you get to it. That's not very satisfactory. That's no harbinger. That's all. But what if I said, my house is quite a short distance from a large industrial city? And very often, the smoke from the factories comes over and actually envelops my house as well. So it may be that you're approaching my house with no road signs or warnings. You'll actually smell the smoke and you'll see the smoke of the city which lies just beyond. Okay, this is speculation. But do I need to tell you about the smoke that we have today? Do you know, I'm amazed that the rate at which prophecy is being fulfilled. All those dreadful things in Matthew and Luke. 
you know, the breakdown of society, morality. We've got to the point where we don't know good from evil. We've got to the point where evil is good and good is evil. It says wickedness will grow. Can you ever think of such wickedness as we have now? Love will grow cold. People only grow in love of themselves and their pleasures. And what about wars and rumours of wars? Every kind of wars, international, civil, racial, ethnic. What about the devastating release of forces of nature? You know, what? Well, everyone's beginning to wake up to it. You know, they, in Chicago they got something called the Doomsday Clock, the Atomic the Society of American Atomic Scientists run this thing and it says that the clock is now at 5 to 12. It, it is scary. Look around you. And people will say, well, it's always been like that, hasn't it? What about the later days of the Roman Empire or the Dark Ages? No. And I will speak as a doctor. I think as a doctor we are in an unprecedented age because I have never read or seen such overweening ambition amongst medical scientists and biologists and life scientists in general to do the impossible. To do what? To create life. You know, we've, we've broken, we've, we've mapped the genome. You know, we know all about DNA. We're transplanting organs that increase in knowledge, knowledge, another prophecy, is absolutely amazing and we ain't seen anything that... And they are playing with amino acid blocks to try and create life. It says in Isaiah, I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to other gods. And we're reaching a point, folks, where mankind thinks that they can take the glory of God and start to create life. We can certainly manipulate it. I don't think God's going to allow that. I think he's going to call in his markers. But that's an opinion. But I'll give you one other you can't argue with. You can't argue with this. That the times are close. One word. Israel. Israel is God's time plan. And we know all about the centrality of Israel in his plans. And we know that the, that the, 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 the state has to be restored and then the people restored the pe- to the state, the country, the land. Before 1947... You're entitled to be sceptic. And then suddenly, Israel is born in a day. Before 1967, Gentiles trampled Jerusalem and suddenly Jerusalem is taken back. And now it's recognised by a number of nations as the true heart and capital of that. You can't argue with these facts. It's happening. Romans 11 says the hour has come for you to wake up. And in so many of the, the letters, the epistles, we are appealed to to concentrate on holy living, on living in the spirit, on living for Christ in these last days. To be watchmen to Christians, as I'm being this morning, to tell you what's in my heart, what I'm seeing. Wake up. And to be evangelists to others. I've got something somewhere. You know, you know David Herring well, don't you? Do you know, have you met his friend um, Andrew Bale? Andrew Bale's a, he's a fine man. He had a brilliant idea. And he has 
produce something which I must have on the stand after all. Oh yeah, here it is. It's a big envelope. Dear from message. You know what the booklet says? Have you come across this booklet? Where have we gone? And he's written. This is all just prophecies and explanation. He's written a whole narrative on what happens when the true church is raptured. And this book is to be left prominently in the homes of your <coughs> friends and your relatives to explain retrospectively what's happened. That's being a watchman in a big way. One or two of you might like to look at that. I can't, I've only got one copy, so I can't leave it with you. But that's Andrew Bale's way of doing it. Isn't that amazing? <coughs> Martin Luther was asked what he would do. If he knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow and he'd be raptured, do you know what he said? I'd go out and plant a tree. In other words, business as usual. We've got to hold these two things in tension. As I close, we've got to remember he's coming. It's close. It could be any time. And I'm not going to get any specific warning. But we've got to live in this world and continue to try and be truth to others and preach and talk truth to us and conversationally. Don't treat the raptures as something bizarre. It's something just round the corner. Peter, to end with, says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to the day of the Lord, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, now and ever. Amen. Now we come to our last song of praise or hymn, which is...